Good morning. First reading this morning is taken from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses uh, 6 to 13. And this can be found on page 1187 of the uh, Pew Bibles. Timothy's encouraging report. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear his way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of the Lord. A second reading is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 14, beginning at verse 15, on page 1082. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. 
they belong to the Father who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts of your Holy Spirit, the Counselor, to be with us forever. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide and inspire us and encourage us now as we study your word together for Jesus' sake. Amen. If someone were to ask you the question, what's the difference between the church and a club or society? I wonder what your answers might be. If I could hear better, I'd come round and ask you, but I can't, so I'll give you some answers. Both have regular meetings, and its meetings are often open to visitors. Clubs often revolve around social interaction and getting together on a regular basis. And the church, in some ways, is like that too. If we're involved in a club or a society, we have a financial commitment and responsibility towards that particular club. I pay £15 a year for membership of the Engage Society. I won't tell you all about that now. And the same could be said about the church. If we're involved and committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and committed to his church, we have financial implications in support of God's work. So if you think about it, there are lots of similarities between a church and a club. And that can be disheartening when you think about it, especially if you look at our society through the eyes of an unchurched person who's seeking to find fellowship and companionship in a larger group setting. They're looking around, and there are all these opportunities for fellowship available. But what is it about the fellowship of the church that makes it stand out above all other offerings? Or perhaps I ought to couch the question in terms of what should make the fellowship of the church stand out from all other offerings? Let's ask then, what's different about the church from a club? And the passage from Paul's first letter to the Christians in Thessalonica deals with that very issue. Indeed, Paul, through his relationship with this church, which he planted, reveals how a church ought to be different from a secular club. And the old saying rings true, actions speak louder than words. You can be a member of a club and never help those around you. You can be a member of a church, but as a real member of a church, you can't remain inactive and indifferent to the needs of the people around us. It happens sometimes in our community that clubs get together to help out a family or an individual who suffered to raise funds or to raise awareness of a need. When that happens, these actions often receive a lot of attention in the local media. And part of the reason is it gets the attention is because the caring hand of the club may be a unique event. When it comes to church life, Action to help others isn't the exception, it's the norm. And as churches that are committed to mission and caring, uh, and we're one of those churches, 
we set aside financial support for mission, as well as giving through practical help to others who are in need. A visitor to our church was astounded at the amount that we give to mission uh, in, in our support here for work overseas and in this country. But that's how it should be. Jesus has put us together and he wants us to look out for the needs of others and actively care for them. And the way the church differs from a club is revealed when we realize that when we're part of a church, we're invigorated by the success of others. And Paul stopped at Thessalonica on his second missionary journey and preached there over three weekends and the days in between before being run out of town. We can read about it in Acts chapter 17. And even though Paul had only been there a short time, the Lord blessed his message and a number of people, both Jews and Greeks, were converted to faith in Jesus Christ. But the persecution of Christians didn't stop with Paul's departure. And so Paul was concerned for these new converts at Thessalonica. Would they remain faithful in spite of the persecution? So to find out, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how the church was doing. And we read in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 to 9, part of the reading, that Timothy has just now come back to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. In all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? And as a minister of the gospel, Paul found the ministry difficult. By his own admission, he was in distress and struggling against persecution. But when Timothy returned from Thessalonica, Paul was working in Corinth, which was a seriously depressing place where Paul was abused because of his ministry. And while it's true that people were coming to faith and the ministry was making a real impact, the difficulties of his ministry were making it difficult to see the blessings. It happens. And sometimes we only see the flaws and not the blessing. Some years ago, we bought a, 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 a second-hand caravan which was in pristine condition. My son was practicing his golf and the ball whizzed over my, my, my mother's head and hit the caravan just above her head. He denied denting the caravan, but we knew it was him. But for a while, the flaw in the caravan of this dent caused by the golf ball was more important than the, the wonderful kitchen that we had in this caravan, which was much better than we had, the one we had at home. One flaw made the caravan lose its prestige, at least for a while. And Paul is feeling like that, seeing the flaws and not the blessing, until Timothy arrives back from Thessalonica. And the message which Timothy brings is described in 3 verse 6 as good news. And when Paul uses this term elsewhere, it always describes the good news of salvation. Salvation is good news. But Paul is saying, in effect here, the message I received about you, Thessalonian Christians, was my salvation. It was just what I needed to boost me and to thrill me and to reinvigorate me. 
and he was excited because the believers in Thessalonica had remained faithful to the gospel in spite of the persecution they were suffering. And this is the way earlier on in the letter that he describes it. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia. Where have we heard about Macedonia this week? And Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. And we continue to remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you were here last week, Joss preached about good works produced in us by God in response to prayer. And there's the link with last week. The Thessalonian Christians were producing works of faith prompted by love and by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though Paul had been whisked away from the Thessalonian Christians after three weeks, they continued to go from strength to strength, and that invigorated Paul. And it's that sort of invigoration which should still be found in the church. Many Christians will come back from various celebrations that take place during the summer, which can be a means of real encouragement to find thousands of other Christians worshipping and learning together. Rather than coming back thinking, oh, if only we were like that in our church, it should be a means of encouragement that God is actually moving and blessing in many places in this land. We can be a member of a club and not be affected by the success of others. I wonder how many members of the MCC will be toasting the success of the Australian cricket team. I suspect they won't be. How many Pompey fans rejoice in the success of the Scunners when they win? I don't think they do. How many Manchester United fans celebrate the success of Manchester City, a club with a seven-year history? I don't think we do. But in the church, we rejoice over God's grace, which keeps working. And it's an attitude we need. And it's not always an attitude that's easy to sustain, to sustain especially because of the world we live in. Just think for, for a moment about the way that the National Lottery is promoted. Often the advertisers will get people who won to tell their story. Oh, it's transformed our lives. And the main message is that it's great that people have won the money. But the subliminal message is, wouldn't you rather it happen to you? Go on, go and have a gamble. It's worth the effort because you might become a millionaire, though the odds have been reduced. We're keen on success. But as a church, we shouldn't become jealous of the spiritual success, success of others. Instead, we're to use that success as a spur to us and as an encouragement to us to deepen and grow in numbers and in faith. The media would have us believe that the churches in this country are empty because it suits their secularist agenda. They choose not to notice that in many places here in the UK and overseas, the church is growing. And I've ministered in many churches through the years, particularly when I was a school chaplain and not having a, a chapel to worship in. I went out to lots of different churches in the Reading area. And 
some of them were really struggling in terms of numbers. And when you've only got 12 in your congregation, it's very easy to be discouraged and to envy the success of other churches. But God in Christ is doing amazing things for those who are his children. He has done and will do so more than we ask or think. When we hear stories of people coming to faith, as we have heard already in the service today, or coming back to faith, having been away from the church for a while, that can inspire us and encourage us in our own lives. When we're going through difficult times, as Paul did, we can find inspiration. And rather than being jealous of the way that God is working in the lives of others, we can use that news as a fresh breeze to enliven us. The church is different from a club. We rejoice in the success of others. It should also be different because of the quality of fellowship. The New Testament word for fellowship is a lovely sounding word, koinonia. And I have to say that I looked in vain in the passage set for me for this particular word and eventually gave up looking about 10 o'clock on Friday night. And then I realized that actually the idea of fellowship is behind this prayer of Paul's rather than the actual word. Paul only uses the word uh, four times, I think, uh, and it's all to do with excluding people from the fellowship, which wasn't what Mike wanted us to think about, and once about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Fellowship, koinonia, literally means bearing one another's burdens. And it's here even more, I believe, that we part company from clubs and secular societies. We have, as Christians, fellowship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have fellowship with each other as we bear each other's burdens. We go that extra mile in our ministry to people, in helping people. It's been said that true love takes the burden off people rather than increasing it. I'll just give you an illustration uh, which I was thinking about just before the service. I visit a, a senior member of the congregation. I only had an hour's parking, and when I got there, I said, I'm sorry, I've only got an hour. Oh, I'm sorry to be a nuisance to you. And I thought, that was the wrong thing to say because I wanted that person to be the focus of my attention, even if it was just for an hour. I think I need a disabled parking sticker to be able to get a longer time to park or pay for it. I'm a bit reluctant to do that. True love takes the burden off people rather than increasing it. I increased that person's burden because I limited the time available. Paul suggests in 1 Thessalonians 3 verses 12 to 13, now may God our Father himself and the Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, brackets, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of your God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. Now this is one of the rare places where the NIV translation that we use doesn't actually do justice to the original language because verse 13 isn't in the original, a separate request. And so it should read, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another 
just as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of our love for one another, our sense of being blameless and holy is increased. One way to increase love is by loving more deeply, and we spoke about that two weeks ago. Paul prayed that the love of the Thessalonians would increase and overflow, as I've suggested, going that extra mile to meet people's need. They needed love and support, especially when they were being bombarded by the world and persecuted for their faith. If they couldn't turn to fellow Christians for support, to whom could they turn? In the same way, we too want God to increase our love for our fellow church family members. What he's asking is that we become less selfish as we become more concerned for others, bearing each other's burdens. And Paul prayed that God would increase the love the Thessalonians had for all people and even those who were persecuting them, because the scope of love reaches beyond the immediate fellowship. And that fits Christ's command. In Matthew 5, he instructed us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Is it really possible to show unselfish concern to those who don't seem interested in returning the same love? Well, the truth is, we don't have what it takes to show this kind of love. That's why it's important to point out that Paul wasn't praying that the Thessalonians produce this increase in love themselves. He prayed that God would grant them the increase. And since it's God's will that our love increase, we can be certain that when we pray for it, God will give it to us. And that's a challenging thought for our human natures, our sinful natures, because often deep down, we'd rather go on holding a grudge than actually forgive. When we're part of the church, our agenda is set by our Saviour, who has our best interests as a priority. And it's at this point that the difference between a church and a club comes to the forefront. At clubs, no matter which ones they are, they're all held together by rules and regulations and bylaws but the church is held together by God's grace. We've a saviour who's come to us and called us to be part of his family, even though we're very under, a very undeserving lot, because God doesn't just love us because we're wonderful. We don't always fit the criteria for being a member of God's family. There are times when we bend and break the rules. There are even times when we live incomplete rebellion and if the church was a club we'd have lost our membership a long time ago but the church isn't a club Paul's evangelism and church planting was so effective because the people knew that here was a man prepared not only to stand up and preach but to share every aspect of his life with them and to share their experience too an important principle for those who see church planting as their priority. He loved, lived out his love for their sake. 
And the church is a place where the grace of Jesus and his love for us as human beings, as sinful men and women, prevails. It's the place where the lost can be found and anyone who's feeling on the edge can be brought into the middle. It's a place where sinners can be turned into saints. And we find here in this passage of Paul as he writes this, the purpose of growth in love is that we may establish, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God. I've got my socks on today that the members of the church um, staff team gave me, called Mr. Perfect. It's my Lifetime Achievement Award. And I think they were given to me because I'm not perfect. They know that, I know that, you know that. But the fact is that as Christians, this is to do with our status. We are those who are regarded by God through faith in Christ as holy and blameless. In fact, we're all saints, which is a bit tough for a Pompey fan to be called a saint. <laughs> I don't know if there are any Pompey fans here this morning. Well, not season ticket holders anyway. But we're all saints. The word holy here is used of God and indicates the very highest standard that God desires of all his readers. A Christian should display holiness and it's something that we should aim at in our lives. What should we aim for that will make us as a fellowship to be seen to be different if it's not enjoying the success of others? Being those who love beyond the call of duty and being those who are seen to be holy and blameless. It will involve us as Christians in being honest, people of integrity, being those who are completely reliable and trustworthy beyond that of others. Our language should be that which would glorify God rather than displease him. A vicar was imprisoned recently for helping himself to wedding and funeral fees which were payable to his diocese. And Paul doesn't leave the Thessalonian Christians with any generalizations. And he mentions in the next chapter the very serious and potentially devastating threat of sexual immorality. And Paul tackles head on this, this assault on holiness and the morality of God's people. They hadn't at that time fallen into immorality trap, but Paul warns them about it. And in a time when biblical understanding of morality is under attack, and coming at the end of the week, when we learn that 38 million people are signed up to a website that promotes marital infidelity, it's not hard to understand. In the last week, too, the very Reverend Andrew McLean's commission has reported on sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church, followed by an apology by the Archbishop. Lest we be hasty in thinking it's only those who are celibates who are involved in abuse. Two married Anglicans, both of my acquaintance in the past, have been imprisoned for abuse. That's very hard to absorb. But the results of this public failure to pursue holiness in this and other areas has led to a huge decline in the trust and respect in which clergy were once held. The Church Times on Friday mentioned this in particular. That's hugely disappointing. But I'm reminded of a 
riposte of a bishop who verb was verbally assaulted by a member of, his con of the congregation who complained bitterly about what she considered the poor quality of the clergy. And he replied, Madam, I'm afraid we only have the laity to choose from. So whether we're ordained, whether we're lay, God requires of us a standard of holiness that is beyond that of the world around us. Moral living is a way of pleasing God. And Paul says, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do this more and more, and all the more as the day of the Lord's return grows ever closer. What difference does it make to be a member of the church? We are enthusiastic about God's work. We find love and companionship and burden bearing and we seek for holiness even in our imperfection. And it's a fellowship that will be seen both by us and felt by those looking for a, a community to call home. Let's pray that God will draw people into our community where they will find love and a sense of holiness by God's grace. Amen.